Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Behavior is one of the major keys for professional and also private success. And today I am joined by an expert in the field of human behavior. Anumar Chiaud is the CEO and founder of the Behavior Company, and she has been working for over 20 years as a behavioral advisor, consultant, coach, and keynote speaker. Anumartia specializes in nonverbal communication, influencing others, communication skills, and leadership. She has developed programs for multiple international companies and teaches managers, executives, and teams how to create better working environments, develop better interpersonal skills, and more effective communication. She's also a sought-after lecturer and works with several universities in the Netherlands. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Anumartya, thank you so much for joining me on the Superhumanized podcast today. It's wonderful to have you as a guest. Thank you, Ariana. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I've listened to other podcasts and I'm very much honored that I'm here to have this conversation with you. I'm looking forward to it. And thank you for the fantastic introduction with even using my real name. So I would say let's call me Anne from here on because I know it's a tongue twister. But <laughs> thank you for doing that because I know it's difficult. Oh, my absolute pleasure. I deal with similar things. People often ask me, how do I pronounce my name? In German, it would be Ariana. So the closest in English would be Ariana. And I appreciate beautiful names such as yours. And I always am eager to pronounce them correctly. Yeah. And Anna Martias certainly is, hits the box, the check mark for beautiful names. But um, Thank you so much. My parents couldn't choose, so they just had the name Anna and Marcia, and they put them together. Yeah. When you work international, it's not the easiest name, but that's why I love the first one. It's Anne. And, and Anne is beautiful. And you know what? It's great to have options. So kudos to your parents to give you options, and it gives more range in life. You're, in general, a person that is eclective. And I love people who are eclective. I think it's our diverse experiences that inform what then becomes our life's calling and also our life's art. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you have been working for 20 years as a behavioral advisor. You're a CEO and founder of the Behavior Company. You're based in Amsterdam. You work with multinationals. However, in uh, your past life, you actually once contemplated becoming a film director, right? Actually, I would say a theatrical director. I'm officially, uh, I studied the School of Arts and I graduated in, and this is a mouthful again, dramatic expression through verbal and physical behavior. So officially I graduated from that. Yeah, so art, the theaters, plays, yep. I love that. So what inspired you to change your career path and how does your former interest and love influence what you do now? Yeah, for me, it was a very specific moment that I can, can look back on. And so in my last year, I was asked to give some presentations regarding stage presence. So there were these, you could say, 12 gray men in 12 gray suits, and they never heard about using your body to actually make sure that the message you have comes across. So one of the things I taught them was how you look at the audience, how do you present yourself, how do you address yourself on stage, because their goal was to present the numbers in big, large companies, so the year numbers that they had to present. And for me, what was shocking is that they had so little knowledge on mm. this subject. I thought being in the Academy of Arts, it's a very secluded group, you could say, 
I thought everybody knows is everybody has this knowledge of how to use your body to be effective. Luckily for me, I found out that's not the case. And for me in that moment, there was a click in my mind. I should teach others about this. And of course, I didn't know that those 12 men would represent a lot of business afterwards, but I found out that was the case. A lot of people are not aware of it. And so I changed my goal. So I graduated and instead of going to the art work or the art focus, I decided to actually focus on business. And um, still, I would say I use all the skills that the academy taught me, which is observing, which is as a director, you always have to challenge your actors. What do they need to do differently to come across as a certain character on stage. And that is still something I use every day, but in this case, not with actors, but with CEOs, for instance. I just love how these completely or seemingly completely different parts of our lives actually come together as a cohesive whole later. We have a little bit of an overlap. Today, I'm focused on health and wellness and also writing as an author. But many years ago in my past, I actually also studied acting in London and I learned things that gave me really some key tools for life. Also learning how to read others, learning how to use your own body, your voice and what you signal to others. And those are invaluable even today. So I, I just love hearing what, what you shared with us about your life. And you work with many different sectors, such as uh, banking, healthcare, industry. And so when all these people from these diverse backgrounds come to you, is there one most common reason why they seek you out and uh, wish to change their behavior? I, I would say that it's the need for awareness. It, it's just very diverse. Our clients are very diverse. But the main reason, if I had to pick one, it would be that they want to become aware, how do I come across? And that could be that they're not aware of their own behavior, or it could be that they're not aware of the effect it has. Yes. And the interesting part is that it could be an individual question for one person, but it could also be a team. Like, why aren't we interacting the right way? What's happening here? So what we usually do is define or, or describe what's going on. So we help them with registering all the elements we just discussed. And it could be that it is just their body language, but it could also be the way they say, what's their prosody? What's their proxemics from towards each other, all these kind of things. So we make them aware. And the second part would be, we help them to become more effective because the question they all have is, okay, we want to become better even at the point where they say we want to become exceptional. And that changes, that is diverse as well. But we help them to realize who am I? What, how do I come across? And how can I become better at what I'm doing? And I, I love that you emphasize awareness and something you also really emphasize. And I think that is linked to awareness and that you focus on is presence. And a lot of us may think that presence is something you either have or you have not. I'd like to know from you, how do you define presence? Why is it important? And how can it be trained? Oh, interesting question. And a lot of elements in the question or layers, you could say, in the question. Because first, and this is really my belief, you have to believe that it can be trained. Because mm -hmm. some people have this believe this is who I am. I cannot change myself. Thank you for the information, but that's it. So when a client is, for instance, sent, <laughs> if HR says, oh, sorry, you have to work with this person, that is not possible in my book. I try and I help them as far as I can, or I confront them with certain elements, but it starts with, okay, I think I can change as they have to have this core belief that things can be different. So actually starting from that end point, then you have to realize, okay, how do we do this? How can I help them by really reflecting on themselves? And as you say, use presence. Now that starts with knowledge about body language, about behavior, but also knowledge about who am I? What is my goal? What are my 
what is my focus point, all these kind of things. Because when you show up at work, you have to know why am I here and how do I want to ooze that out? So sometimes people come to us and say, okay, we, we really want to have more presence. We want to become more known in, in a team, for instance, or they want to go higher up, or all those kind of questions. And it's very important that they define what is presence for them, because sometimes it could be a mental thought like, oh, I'm not, I, for instance, they think, oh, I'm not good enough. Then you don't ooze out that presence. So it could be a mental change that they say, oh, yeah, you know what? I have to believe in myself and I can do these. But presence can also be, as fantastically described by Amy Cuddy, the outer side. Okay, how do I look? What is my presence? What is my sense? And that is something you can work with as well. So to answer a, a quest, to answer your question, I would say it has so many layers that you first have to define if you're working with somebody, what is the layer that we should work on if you want to work at presence? And you see it when somebody enters the room and it doesn't have to be out and loud because some people would describe that as presence, but that could even go overboard. But presence is, I would say, if I have to summarize it, knowing yourself, knowing your goal and how it works with your body and your attire and all those kind of things to send that out. And which also ties back into what you mentioned before, awareness. And what I find really interesting is that we're often very focused on other people's behavior, often so much so that we forget how we behave ourselves, what kind of signals we send out to others. How can we learn to pay more attention uh, to our own behavior and develop our own behavioral awareness? I love that question. I hope that that would be one goal that everybody who listens to this podcast would say, okay, how can I reflect on myself? One of the practical advices would be literally thinking back on how you worked that day. What did you say? So sometimes people sit in the car back home and they reflect on what did I do and was that effective for how I did it? What I also recommend sometimes is actually taping yourself these days with online sessions you can really become aware of how do I come across? And it is remarkable how people behave not knowing what, what, it ha what happens when you have certain elements going on, not just in your background, because that, again, could be distraction, but also what do you do? And so reflectiveness starts with willing to reflect. That's the will again. But you can do this by really focusing on um, yourself with asking questions, but also ask others, what, how, how did I come across? What, so for instance, when people have to rehearse presentations, don't do this by yourself. Ask somebody else to join you and to reflect on how do you do this? Yeah, so I think that's such a crucial and helpful thing to do. And then, of course, also for us to be open to receive the feedback. And even if it's feedback that might put us off a little bit or where our initial reaction would be like, oh, that's offensive. Why would they tell us that? But it's actually in order to be helpful to us and could help us let go of certain behaviors, certain signals that we send out that don't help ourselves. Exactly. Nobody likes feedback. That's one of the reasons they hire us as a company. So we are allowed to give others feedback. Companies are afraid to do this because they don't oversee consequences. They have this belief that it's fragile. We shouldn't do it. But when you come to the point where you realize it's helpful, exactly as you say, then you might see feedback in a different way. Of course, people have to be trained in how they say it. And you can always give feedback on the way you get feedback. If somebody is really blunt, uh, then you might say, oh, I really want to listen to the content but please, could we just sit down first? Because now we're in this office and I really don't like it if other people hear it. It makes me a bit uncomfortable. But again, when you understand that you can grow from this, it's very helpful. And not to forget that it doesn't have to be negative. Feedback, it's very important to emphasize on the good things you do as well. So why, why was it effective? One of the things I teach as CEO and managers is... When they give out compliments, don't just say, 
great guys. Thank you for doing a great job. That is, it's nice to know that you did a great job, but what made it great? What is the actual specific feedback? Because if you have more content and more depth in that feedback, then you start to learn, oh, this was good because you guys were on time. You had great contact with the client. You even came up with proactive solutions. And then a team starts to work and realize this is how we can grow if we emphasize on those positive things. And yes, okay, we also have to focus on negative things. That's how we... And also it's important to know and to internalize that what we usually label as negative is not truly negative. It will help us grow once we become aware of it. Exactly. What is negative even? That even that could be a discussion. What's positive and negative? And that's also what I say. It doesn't, nothing is, okay, there are a few behaviors that we would all say, don't do this. That is not okay in the office. And there are lines and really restrictive settings. But in essence, you can always say, yes, but what is the goal? And sometimes I even taught a manager once, he was very kind and sweet and all those kind of things. But what he lacked was sometimes to emphasize on this is not okay. So mm. sometimes, and he's thought, yeah, but that's such negative behavior. And it, it felt like negative behavior, but when he started to, to be a bit more um, firm with his team, it was a sales team, so they could handle it, you could say. He realized, oh, this is not negative at all. This is actually effective. Because when you give feedback, I don't know if this is really a good idea, then it doesn't come across in this case with this specific team. And when he emphasized with his prosody, okay, guys, this is not how we should work. The team, then he got the message across, you know, what is negative? It depends on the context, of course. Absolutely. And it's also, I think it's a key quality of a leader to be able to point out the good, the bad, and the ugly, and also be able to communicate it in a way and form where it's not offensive, where it's not an attack, but where the people on the other end of the communication will receive it and can use it like a rail to hold on to and to further the common cause, which you all have as a team or as a company. What are, in your experience, in your mind, it's a topic that I often discuss on this podcast, leadership. What are the key qualities of a good leader? I would say knowing your team. Of course, you have to know the goals and objectives of the company, else you wouldn't know why you're there. But if you know your team, if you realize who are these individuals, what are their preferences, how can I adjust my style to lay out this setting where everybody can be growing? I would use a term that Joan Averro uses a lot, be exceptional. How can you be exceptional? And if you, a lot of managers just focus on themselves and they use their own style. And that is effective for some of the people in the company. But if you realize who is my team and how can I help them to grow, I would say then you're one of the best leaders in your company. And there's something that you mentioned when we had a prior discussion prior to this podcast that an issue, one of the issues is that managers, leaders often only look at the team as a whole and not actually at the individuals who yes. are part of the team. And I'd love to for you to give us your take on that. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of that because it, it depends on how many people you lead, of course. There are some managers who have 100 people, then it's more mm -hmm. difficult to have attention for all the individuals. But then still, how can you make that work? If you see a team as a team, you will manage the team as an object. And that's not possible because a team is defined by the people who are in that team. And of course, the goals they have. Sometimes even the goals don't fit the team. So maybe you should form a different team for that specific goal. As a manager, you can always try to understand who is in my team by having conversations with them, by asking them, but also literally observing so if there's a meeting or they're working on a project, how do they do this? What are they working on? What is their style? So you can define a team as a team, but it, it is defined by who's the leader of that team or who's very quiet or who always finishes the little details afterwards. And if you find out that, you can already realize 
or, or use that to, to your benefits as a leader. Oh, this is a detailed question. I should go to that person. Or, hey, how can I bring this to this team? They did very well when I made it very specific. Or they did very well when I brainstormed, when I let them brainstorm. But I should tell so-and-so first because that person is really good at leading the team. So you, mm-hmm. de- you define, you observe, and you look at behaviors again. And if possible, definitely just sit in a corner when they have uh, a session. But also, again, when it's online, who is saying something, who isn't, and what do you just, what do you connect with that? Because a lot of leaders say, oh, my team is so quiet, they don't say anything. Little did they know that they were talking all the time. Or if you just give a person X, if you give them just a few more minutes or a few more seconds to let things sink in, oh, then all of a sudden this person starts to blossom and to realize that there is something they have to contribute. But it takes time. And that is difficult in these days. We want to go fast. We want to go, yeah, focus on a goal. And sometimes that's not the effective way for everybody in that team. Mm. You gave us some really great leads and observations on what makes a good leader in your experience in working with, you know, international companies and observing many different leader types. What are the issues and behaviors that make us bad leaders? What really jumps out at you? What makes us bad leaders? I I will not uh, be too political, but there are a few uh, bad leaders uh, that we've seen. Again, what makes a bad leader? I would, what is when it becomes not about managing people, but about being so focused on your own choices and your own views. And you can even see my nonverbal changing right now because it's so serious. I've worked with a lot of teams where the where it turned out that the manager was at fault by being destructive, even that word, not giving people room to think, being very aggressive, setting boundaries that were not necessary, very demanding behavior, all those kind of things. And it is very destructive because sometimes you can say, oh, he's just a bad leader, but the effect it has on short-term and long-term, that is devastating. And one of the things that I, I see is sadly that there's a lot of bad leaders out there, but because they are at a certain position, people don't dare to give them feedback anymore. And that worries me. Sometimes I get hired to address those leaders and and it's, a, it's difficult, but I, of course, it's my job. So I'm fortunate in a way to reflect and to tell them, okay, do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize the effect? But in some companies, that's not the case. And they justify, oh, that's just him or her. That's just that person. You don't have to see it as negative. Just let it go by. And it's destructive. It's really destructive behavior because they don't give any room for genuine behavior by others. Mm. So are there some tools that a team can use when they're stuck? with a bad leader that they can use to help whoever the leader is become a better leader? Yes, I would say so. Again, if let me start with the, the worst case scenario is please uh, consult HR. You don't have to do this by yourself. A lot of teams struggle, again, because they don't dare to speak up. Starting with the worst case scenario, you don't have to do this by yourself as a team. If it's not workable and you don't feel up to it, please consult AR, please, for HR. You have to let them know. You don't have an obligation as a team to struggle day in, day out because of your bad leader. So that would be the first advice. The others are, do you give feedback? So the bad part is, again, it's graduating. You have bad leaders that are a little bit bad, you could say, and they might be open to feedback. I've had teams, and then this is a very interesting thing. I get hired a lot to discuss, um, well, non-effective teams, so to say. And what I do is we we talk to everybody in the team. So it's a you know, free talk. Nobody's presence is just me. And they tell me everything they've observed. They tell me what the effect is and what they think that should be changed. Now, One of the things I always ask, have you addressed this? And sadly, they haven't. 
I would say 80% has never addressed it, maybe gossiping towards each other, but never towards a leader. One of the advices would be address it if you feel safe, of course, because if you don't feel safe, you shouldn't do it. But many times the simple solution with these teams was addressing what they've observed. Of course, again, in a way, as you just discussed, that feedback should be helpful and should contain behavior and the effect, because then those leaders start to realize, oh, I didn't know that what I literally said to you, that was offensive or that was hurtful. And they start to learn. And it's remarkable because there was one, I will tell you one example about this leader of a team who had, who conducted meetings, endless meetings. And I wouldn't say he was a bad leader, but he wasn't an effective leader. So that frustrated a lot of these uh, team members because they needed to do other things and nobody dared to speak up how ineffective it was. And one of the things that my job was to address this, why is this team not effective? And one of the reasons, it's too long. Please be shorter in your answers. And when I said that to him, and he was very open about it, he was like, oh, thank you so much. I didn't know this. Also, thank you so much for the feedback. But the funny part was all the people in the team came up to me. Oh, that's so great that you told him because I didn't dare to tell him. And for me, that's also sad when those leaders don't get the feedback that sometimes they deserve to get feedback because they need to grow as well. Mm -hmm. Again, we're looking at this skill because you have a little bit of bad leaders and you have very bad leaders. And when you go to this bad leadership that is negative, you have to come up with uh, data. So that would be the other advice. Write things down, write examples down, realize what's going on, but but be specific because if mm. you say I have a bad leader, why, what does he do? And is that, is it once, is it twice? How many times does this happen? Yeah. And you know what you said, a lot of people don't dare to bring up what bothers them or what they feel is problematic at the workplace probably also has to do with people fear influences their decisions. Something else that you also help your clients develop is to develop their intuition for reading body language, for reading situations, which could, for example, be helpful. You just mentioned the one leader who was actually glad to get the feedback, (laughs) not the threat. So can you share some of your insights with regards to how to develop the intuition to read body language, um, your insights and some techniques maybe? Mm -hmm. If you see, for instance, that when people talk about intuition, we have, we should remember that there are neurons in our stomach. We know that when you realize something, a lot of people say, oh, I just felt it. We have neurons in our stomach. That is very important to realize that those signals are very truthful and we should not ignore them. And then you can start, by the way, oh, that's a fantastic book that everybody should read. It's The, the Gift of Fear. Yeah. it's. Uh, have you read it? No, I have not. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It, it literally d- describes what we can do, how serious we can take these moments when we're fearful, but not just fearful. Also, when we realize this is off, this is not really okay. What is happening here? We are we are primed. We are wired to to see nonverbal communication and behavior first. This is how we've grown. This is how we've developed. Sadly for us, we ignore it at one point. So we realize it. We we see it. We show it. But then all of a sudden, we start over rationalizing. Yeah, it probably is not. Or I might have seen it the wrong way. But we have to trust, you could say intuition, but I would say this is our our wired, it's in our DNA, it's how we've grown. We should know that this is what we can take very seriously when it comes to observing. And then you can always ask and check, did I see this right? Are are you sad? Are you happy? Did I miss something? Or for, for instance, with clients, are you still contemplating on this? But we've already seen it. We just 
ignore it sometimes. That's excellent advice. I swear by my intuition, I've learned to really heed it and it has served me very well. I love what you just mentioned about the neurons that we have in our gut. And uh, yeah, so people who would have wrote this off as woo-woo before, now they know this is science. <laughs> yeah, it is science. And there's so much more out there. And, that, and that's actually why I love teaching about this is that there's so much more to discover. There's so much to learn. And I'm discovering every day new things and science is discovered every day. But we make it into something vague when actually when we start listening to it and when we, for instance, when we teach people observational skills or we help them, managers, we say, did you see this? Or did you see that those people are looking at each other all the time? It's, oh, I forgot about this, or, oh, I didn't see that. But the minute they start becoming aware of it, it's so useful. We just have to go back maybe a bit to uh, realizing how useful it is, we, because we used it for millions of years. So, Yes, we did. And are there certain behavior patterns that are reoccurring that you see very often that hold people back from reaching their goals? I would say that it is maybe undefining, undefined goals. So do you really know what you want and why do you want it? So mm -hmm. some people say, oh, I want to be the best salesperson. Is that really what you want? So th th there could be a question there. What is the goal? And again, are you willing to observe yourself and to define what is already helpful for achieving that goal? or what you should actually develop. And that usually what you have to develop is out of your comfort zone and people don't like to do that. So if what we see is that some, most of the people have a very clear definition of what they should change, but they don't know how to do it. So even in teams when I or individual uh, sessions, when I ask them, I was like, okay, what's your goal? And do you want to work on it in a specific way? Usually I say, you know what? I think that what I'm going to say is already what you know this already, but how are you going to do this? So that means you have to nudge them sometimes or you give them homework assignments or, or you challenge the goal sometimes. But it's, it's knowing, again, who you are and what do you want to achieve and what do you have to change? And your company works with a three-step method, yes. right? So can you give us a little more detail about the three steps? Thank you. Yes, I we defined how can you one of the questions is like how can you change? And if you want to change, we need to take steps and how to do that. And we always start with the analysis. So that means we observe people. Sometimes we even do psychological tests or we have conversations. So it's important to analyze. Mm -hmm. That's usually our part. Then the part starts where we make others aware. So we describe what we've observed, we describe what we've seen, and we let them know, okay, do you realize that this is what you show? And do you realize what the effect is? And also the awareness, if it aligns with the goals you have. And then thirdly, the third part is action. And that is what we really emphasize on, because you can be aware and you can really understand where it comes from. But if you want to change your behavior, you have to take action, you have to do something. And the action itself could be, again, oh, I have to change my mental belief or I have to change uh, my work area. But it could also mean how do I present myself? What is my body language? So we practice with them. And uh, so those three steps, analyzation or analysis, awareness and action are very important for us. I have those moments too, and I have them in all kinds of occasions. It could even be with family. It could even be with a friend that I know for many years, and all of a sudden I'll use a wrong name or fact, or oh, that's why I'm also always nervous before like one-on-one -on -one interviews or stuff, because I'm always like, oh. And the thing is, when you go in, you had a day that was disjointed, stuff happened, your car broke down, and then your brain is already primed for yeah. something happening. And then that stress, even I know for myself, it causes me to have more of these, these glitches. And, oh, and I'll, then it's just I'll tell you what, it, I can tell you the science behind it. It's called oh, yes. limbic hijacking. So when we're under stress, this is, you're going to use this, when we're under stress, 
it's called limbic hijacking. So what happens is we go to this non, you could say that, so the neocortex stops working and we go into this freeze flight fight mode. Okay. I don't know what to say or do. I don't know how to think because it's stress that reduces the possibility for us to think clearly. It's remarkable and not very helpful. And that's also, it's funny. You could say sometimes when you later after a conversation and you're like, Oh, that's what I should have said. Because then the stress has calmed down. We know that it's very different that stress reduces when the stress is reduced, we can actually think again. Yes, I know what you're just saying about the limbic system getting hijacked. So you have these different reactions and mine is also this blackout or freeze. So I imagine in one of my prior lives, I must've just been this little very little harmless porcupine or squirrel <laughs> I would just freeze because that would be my best option at survival because I can't run I can't fight <laughs> so I probably was this thing that just went like this hoping that everything would pass yeah but if you but this is what we still do if you look at how we are wired again when we you know when we were in the jungle all this or in the in these uh, settings where there were large felines coming for us you had to freeze because if you would move, you would be bitten, you would be attacked. So just by doing nothing, it's very effective. And this is what I mean, it's still wired. We still have this in us. And now it happens when when we have a bad boss who says, come over and we have to talk about your product. Oops. And it's the same. It is the same. Things that are not even life-threatening, but are our software still processes it as such because the stress is processed like it would have been tens of thousands of years ago. And we yes. literally feel it's something existential. <laughs> yeah. It's, and, and that's also why sometimes you look back and you, and you reflect on it. Like, was it that bad? Maybe not, but it felt huge and it felt awful. And when we talk about bad bosses, when people stay in this setting for a long time, they will literally get sick. then you will have people who will call in sick or they will have stomach aches or all those kind of things. So, yeah. And they truly do get sick because all, if they're in a constant stress mode and their bodies are Mm -hmm. constantly flooded by adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol, God knows what else. It it literally causes a chronic inflammation and then, you know, the immune system crashes. So anything can develop from that. So that's why it's also crucial to develop a a setting. And you also specialize in that to creating an environment that is conducive to furthering the cause of the company, which of course is a functioning team. And a functioning team is a team that is not in a constant state of fight or flight. (laughs) Exactly. Perfectly worded indeed. And these, I found also for myself that when these situations occur, not just for myself to relieve me of the stress, but also for whomever I'm dealing with, such as you just did also moments ago, is when we own up to just being human, (laughs) you know, we're we're all human. Sometimes it's not very nice to, because again, you have certain goals, you want to do something, but if you realize, oh, wait, we have to be honest in situations, for instance, if you have to have presentations that that, and people are very nervous in those moments it helps sometimes depends on the context and the setting of course but sometimes you can just say it oh Mm -hmm. wait guys I am a bit nervous here or I'm a bit startled or oh I my car broke down or these kind of things yeah Totally. Mm-hmm. To this day, I have spoken in front of people quite often, and it doesn't matter whether the setting is small or large. I, I think there's a US term, I sweat bullets. I get so nervous every single time. Ah, it doesn't look like you're nervous. It look, yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> although we see pacifying behavior now. <laughs> right. See, just stroking the hair, right? Adjusting the-, the hair. I think men like to stroke their, what do you call this? The... Yeah, they could, the the philtrum could be, or the uh, connoisseurs, that's what they could, I I don't know if you're going to zoom in on this, but that would be the small areas here, or literally the beard stroking, but you can also see tie adjusting going on, so yeah, men have a lot of uh, things they do as well, and women as well, they also do facial stroking or denting, but usually women, we go for the hair, ventilating when we're stressed, those kind of things. Yeah, exactly. And learning how to read these behaviors are also so helpful. And if you see that 
The other is stressed and it's actually, you want to make people feel comfortable. You'll know how to do it. If you are in a tough business deal and you want to get the deal done and you see whoever you want to get to agree to something that they are getting nervous, you can use that for your benefit as well too. Learning how to read micro expressions. I'm super fascinated by that as well. And that's also where honing our intuition comes in again, because our intuition will actually alert us to certain tiny little behaviorisms or expressions. And once we become aware, it's just a fantastic toolkit to have. Yeah, We will pick up on things more than we realize. And the moment you address it to people like, oh, yes, that's happening. That's what's going on. And if you, the, the only thing that people really have to become, you have to be careful because what people sometimes do is they see one certain behavior, they picked up on it somewhere. Ah, this is happening. That is what I can read from in, in this setting, for instance, with negotiations. You have to read the whole context because what the difficulty is when you start realizing how important body language is, it is also very important how we how we address it, how we use it, how we decode it, so to say. Because if you do the wrong decoding and you use your behavior in a certain way, you can create even more discomfort. For instance, in your example with the negotiation, if you create more stress, then they might even say, I'm not going for this deal. And mm -hmm. you thought you did a good job, but then actually it fails because you decoded it in a wrong way. So context is very important and addressing it again, like um, sometimes not literally, oh, you want to go for the deal, but sometimes that's helpful as well. But really realizing, okay, I'm observing something, but it might not be everything. It, it's an indication and it could I could see discomfort but it doesn't mean that the discomfort is fully focused on me. Is there something else in this room, for instance, that could create this discomfort? Does some, has something happened before? We don't know that. And, and that's the difficulty and even the danger, again, of people reading into things and, and immediately concluding that's what's going on. But you can definitely use it for your benefits and for the benefits of the others. Because mm. if you focus on the comfort oh, there's discomfort with this person. How can I create more comfort? Then the working place would be much more <laughs> relaxed. Absolutely. And what you just mentioned also, that it could be something much other than one's, than oneself that is creating the discomfort, something in the room. I think that is really key, what you just said, because most of us would tend to taking things personal, right? And then we think it's about us, we might get personal where it might completely be not about us. And uh, this is also something that's very important to remember when we go into difficult conversations, not take things personal. And this is something I really was looking forward to speaking to you about with, and that is how to approach difficult conversations. Most of us shy away from them. We're taught culturally to avoid confrontation. We're taught to suppress what we call, quote, negative emotions. And so we just, how do you call it? You, you just push things under the carpet. Uh, but it's very important, whether it's in a business setting or private setting, to actually go for the uncomfortable and the difficult conversations. How can we get into the habit of actually approaching them? And what is the best way to set a difficult conversation up? Yeah, I fully agree with you. And, and it's so important to address it. The sooner, the better. Because what you see when people wait we talked about stress before the stress rises. It is under the carpet, but it's rising under the carpet, so to say. So we, we, we definitely see it growing. So the first thing, as soon as possible, as soon as possible, because the sooner you have a difficult conversation, you will see that it is less stressful for at least the person who wants to address it. Sometimes the other person is not aware of the fact that he or she is going to have a difficult conversation. So you have to keep in mind that you are the one who starts a difficult conversation. Sometimes we are both. Uh, so if there's two parties, both parties know, okay, this is going to be a difficult conversation and they, they have to realize, okay, how are we going to do this? But if you are by yourself and you want to do this, one of the elements is, if possible, prepare. Because if you know what you want to say and if you know how to do it, you will get this habit of when you have to address a difficult conversation, you know how to do it. So to summarize, what I always say is realize what is the content. If I only was allowed to speak up, if I could only say one sentence, what is it, what is it that I want to say? The other thing would be the timing when 
am I going to address this? So if it's in the negotiation with clients present and my colleague does something that I don't think is appropriate, I wouldn't address it at that moment, depending on what it is, of course. But in essence, you would say, no, you wait until the client is gone. And then you say what you did, you gave away too much. uh, That's not how we work, those kind of things. So that would be when. And the other one, and that is very dear to me, and I'm sure that is very dear to you, that is the interaction. That is, who is this person I'm talking to and who am I? Because if I know myself and I know the other person, then preparing for a difficult conversation is much more easier. Because when we have this habit of knowing, oh, this is my goal and this is my role, who am I? Then you realize that sometimes it's not as difficult as you think because you take yourself into consideration and the other person as well. And that is very helpful to uh, use as a method to train yourself in having more difficult conversations. And as far as not just uh, difficult conversations go, because that's a very specific part of learning how to uh, read and also influence behavior, our own and that of others, uh, behavior is also very connected to culture. Have you encountered any typical or maybe even cliche behaviors in certain cultures that are interesting that we should pay attention to? You work internationally, so I'd, I'd love to hear some of your experiences. Yeah, thank you. And and you've done so much internationally as well. So sometimes people are not even aware of the importance of culture. They're they're just like, okay, but we're in this country now. But it's so important to realize it is a factor. I would even say I myself was not 100% aware of how blunt the Dutch culture, for instance, is. I, I, one of the things that I thought, okay, let's address it because it's, uh, we should put it on the table. But for instance, in other countries where I work, you have to work around it. And it doesn't mean you have to be vague because I still teach them how to address things. But one of the things that I realized in my culture is we're very direct. We're even up to the point where we're too blunt, but also how we view time or, or the focus on certain cultural aspects or the focus on, are we in, are we focusing on the, the person themselves or is it more of a teamwork? Are they individualistic or all these elements? There's so many cultural elements. We could talk a whole hour about that. But the fact that we have to realize with different cultures comes a certain emphasis on certain themes then we should then we can prepare for instance difficult conversations but also for teamwork when you have different cultures in one team or working hybrid sometimes they work remote you have to realize okay what is the the common theme what do we agree on but also where do we differ and one of the things that i always advise in teams is talk about it uh, not in a too Dutch blunt way, but address what is your preference in this team? What do you like? What's your style? How do you view time? How do you view feedback? How do you view management even? Because some people have a totally different view in in culture on how they want their manager to behave than, for instance, in other cultures. Mm -hmm. And one of the elements you see when people are focusing on culture, not in a way where they judge each other, but where they realize how they can learn from each other. It's fantastic because then they take out all the good things. And sometimes there are difficulties because it doesn't fully align, but at least I know, oh, okay, when it comes to you, I might have to sugarcoat my feedback a little bit or those kind of things. And I saw your article about validating others and how important that is. Is there one other thing that everyone should start doing today when dealing with other people. One thing to always pay attention to when interacting with family or colleagues or friends. That's a wonderful question. Maybe that would be the answer, asking questions. Mm-hmm. The, what, what happens when you start asking questions, You, the world opens up. You realize that there's so much more you can learn from somebody that you can know about this person, you can realize, okay, what is your belief? What is your goal? What is your view on life? And the way, as you ask questions, for instance, you get to know things 
from all your guests. And what if we would do that at the workplace, if we would be in business settings and we would sit down and say, how do you see this? Or why didn't you like this idea? Or how was your day? Even that, which again, relates to goes to validation as well. To summarize, asking questions. I love that. Asking questions is one of my favorite things in the world. And I love to hear that from you. And you do it so well. (laughs) Most kind. Thank you so much. And one other question I'd like to ask you, Anne, or Anna Martia, which I love your full name, is a question I ask every one of my guests. And that's with regards to the practices that you may have right now in your life or throughout your life that have helped you elevate your mental, physical, or spiritual experience. The practices would be defined in three categories, I would say. One, the practice of reflection. For me, it's very helpful to reflect on, I could say almost everything I do, but not when I'm eating dinner, so to say. But in business, I reflect all the time to realize what did I do? What could I improve? All those kind of things. The other one would be to be curious about knowledge out there. So to read, literally, if you make it specific, to read, to uh, talk to others, to watch movies, be, be curious. And the third one would be, I would say, have fun. Because if you practice fun, not in a childish way, because maybe why not? But in essence, if you have fun, there's so much joy in in, in your life. And sometimes people ask me, okay, what is your hobby? My work is my hobby because I have so much fun on doing this. And of course, there are, I like to go out and eat and all those kind of things. But in essence, if you have fun in every, everything you do, that would be, for me, very effective. And it's very helpful in my life to grow and to well, have a good life, so to say. Yes, to play. I love that. To play and enjoy this existence. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you for sharing that. And for people who'd like to learn more about you, what you do, where can they find you? Where can they reach? Thank you. They can always reach out on LinkedIn. Just type in Anna Maartje out, which would be the full name, or Twitter, but also thebehaviorcompany.eu. Then they can find out a little bit more about the business if they want to. Um, yeah, and, and just reach out, I would say. It's always good to uh, hear from others. And thank you so much for being here and uh, giving me the opportunity to have this conversation with you. No, thank you, Anne. This was really very insightful. Lots of tools and insights that can be applied to our personal, but also professional lives. And I hope we can continue the conversation at some point. Thank you so much for taking time today and being my guest. You're so welcome. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 